Uh, this morning, uh, in light of the, the new year, I wanted to look at a passage that um, it is jumping ahead a little bit, um, but uh, in Exodus chapter 40, a passage that um, the Lord uh, spoke to Moses to instruct him on uh, what to do on the first day of the first month of the year, uh, the second year after they left Egypt. So I thought that some of the things pointed out there are very appropriate for us to hear as well. Uh, Exodus chapter 40, let's, let's read through the passage and talk about it a little bit um, um, and pray. Please hear God's word. Uh, the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, On the first day of the first month you shall erect the tabernacle of the tent of meeting, and you shall put in it the ark of the testimony, and you shall screen the ark with the veil, and you shall bring in the table and arrange it, and you shall bring in the lampstand and set up its lamps, and you shall put the golden altar for incense before the ark of the testimony and set up the screen for the door of the tabernacle. You shall set the altar of burnt offering before the door of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting and place the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it. And you shall set up the court all around and hang up the screen for the gate of the court. Then you shall take the anointing oil and anoint the tabernacle and all that is in it and consecrate it and all its furniture so that it may become holy." You shall also anoint the altar of burnt offering and all its utensils and consecrate the altar so that the altar may become most holy. You shall also anoint the basin and its stand and consecrate it. Then you shall bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting and shall wash them with water and put on Aaron the holy garments and you shall anoint him and consecrate him that he may serve me as priest." You shall bring his sons also and put coats on them and anoint them as you anointed their father that they may serve me as priest. And their anointing shall admit them to a perpetual priesthood throughout their generations. In this particular section, God is giving instruction, obviously, and as it is clearly the case in the book of Exodus and other places as well as in the Old Testament, you see God giving instructions and then they're repeated as they're implemented uh, by, uh, by Moses. And that's what happens here in verses 16 and following through verse 33. Let's read that. Uh, this Moses did according to all that the Lord commanded him, so he did. In the first month, in the second year, on the first day of the month, the tabernacle was erected. Moses erected the tabernacle. He laid its bases and set up its frames and put in its poles and raised up its pillars. And he spread the tent over the tabernacle and put the covering of the tent over it as the Lord had commanded Moses. He took the testimony and put it into the ark and put the poles on the ark and set the mercy seat above the ark. And he brought the ark into the tabernacle and set up the veil of the screen and screened the ark of the testimony as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the table in the tent of meeting on the north side of the tabernacle outside the veil and arranged the bread on it before the Lord as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the lampstand in the tent of meeting 
opposite the table on the south side of the tabernacle and set up the lamps before the Lord as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the golden altar in the tent of meeting before the veil and burned fragrant incense on it as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put in place the screen for the door of the tabernacle and set up and he set up the altar of burnt offering at the entrance of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting and offered on it the burnt offering and the grain offering as the Lord had commanded Moses. He set up the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it for washing with which Moses and Aaron and his sons washed their hands and their feet when they went into the tent of meeting and when they approached the altar. They washed as the Lord had commanded Moses. And he erected the court around the tabernacle and the altar and set up the screen for the gate of the court. So Moses finished the work. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle and Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle throughout all their journeys wherever, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day and fire was in it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. Let's pray. Our Father, in Christ's name, we thank you for this portion of your word and we pray that your spirit would give each of us insight and understanding regarding what you're saying here and what it meant to the original audience and what it means for us today in light of Christ and the gospel and, and the new covenant. Father, work in our hearts uh, the truth that is here uh, given and uh, we pray that your spirit would guide um, the, the teacher as well as those who uh, sit and hear. Father, we pray that you be glorified, you be magnified, Christ would be lifted up, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, this, this morning, from this passage, I want to talk to you about a staged for success, a rational, revolutionary resolution for any year that you might find yourself in. And the goal of this passage is that our entire life would be uh, set apart for the glory of God in Christ. As we um, introduce this particular chapter in the book of Exodus, uh, as we stated, it's repeated twice here that this is what Moses and uh, the Israelites occupied themselves with on the very first day of the year, on the very first month um, uh, that they, um, the second year after they had come out of, out of Egypt, out of bondage. And um, as you think about this particular house of God uh, that was given to them, a tabernacle where God would dwell with them, that is the, that is the goal of the Exodus, as we, we, we said before in, in Exodus chapter 29. Uh, you see that listed as the goal in verse 46. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. And that God has always been trying to get back to dwelling with his people. He dwelt with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, and uh, we sinned and were thrust out of the garden because of our sin, and God uh, relentlessly ran after us because he wanted us back. And so um, before Michael Jackson ever sang, I want you back, uh, God had already uh, in his uh, ministry wanted us back 
to be in fellowship with Him. You typically build and stage uh, a house so people will buy it, move in and make it their own. Um, In this particular passage, Yahweh commanded Moses and Israel to build and stage his house so that he could move in and make them and you his very own treasured possession. You stage to sell, God stage to dwell. You stage for people to desire, God stage because you are his desire. You are the most um, successful and can only be the most successful in life when your own life is staged the way God can operate for the glory of His name. It's no no mystery to anyone who's read the book of Exodus that Exodus begins with Israel building for Pharaoh, and it ends with Israel building for Yahweh. Um, as you look at the life of a believer, uh, our, our liberation, our, our exodus, as it were, from a life of sin, our freedom, our deliverance, our redemption, is never meant to just set us free and to do whatever we want to do. Um, we were, prior to Christ saving us, we were slaves of Satan, slaves of sin, taken captive by the enemy to do his will. And uh, redemption does not look like simply freedom from that. It also is also a freedom to serve the way God has created and commanded us to serve, to serve him, to glorify him, uh, to be slaves of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, That's one of the titles that God gave to Moses. Moses was a servant of the Lord. And uh, as you read the literature of the Apostle Paul, he he classifies himself as Saul, uh, uh, Paul, slave of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle. And uh, as followers of Jesus Christ, you, you read about how we are called to be slaves of Christ. And it's, it's a blessed bondage. It's not at all a, um, an oppressive bondage, but it's something that um, to be envied, to be in bondage to, uh, to, to the Lord Jesus. When you get married, you, uh, you bind yourself to uh, your spouse, and it is to be also a blessed bondage. <laughs> <clears throat> That's all I'll say about that, but sometimes it ebbs and flows, you know, because we're not all that we uh, would, would, would like to be, you know. We're not all we were in our courting stages, isn't that right? We put on the, the best suit, and then uh, and you wake up and look at each other, and as a friend of mine says, you say, yuck, and uh, <laughs> then, you, then you go to God in prayer and say, Lord, help us, uh, and so, but this particular house of God was, was staged for success, for successful fellowship and for successful service and for successful mission in uh, the world. It's, it's very interesting to note, uh, as it's, it's probably obvious to you, that the tabernacle was central to the camp in Israel. 
uh, Israel camped around uh, the tabernacle. God's house was the centerpiece of Israel's encampment. And what was central to God's house was the sacrificial system, particularly the Ark of the Covenant, which was deemed God's throne, uh, overshadowed by the cherubim. And, and what was in that uh, was the documents of God's his lordship. The Ten Commandments were placed inside of that Ark, demonstrating that God was the Lord of lords and, and the King of kings. And, and so you have a central house, God's central house, and then you have a, a centerpiece within that house, uh, the sacrificial system, and uh, the servants, the priests, who were there to minister as, as, as mediators between God and his people and his people and him. Um, and uh, so, number one, God's design in Christ is to furnish uh, your life for sanctified living and sanctified serving. Um, God gives you in this passage a sort of life hack, a setup for life that brings genuine success, and success uh, defined as glorifying God. We define success in all kinds of ways, but the success that's being talked about here is a successful uh, life that glorifies God. That's the only kind of life that is successful. And in this particular tabernacle, you see, uh, more than anything, in light of the New Testament, a portrait of Jesus Christ himself. Uh, John chapter 1, you know the passage, uh, the word was made flesh and literally tabernacled among us. And so the tabernacle is a picture of Jesus. It's a picture of Christ dwelling with his people. And each particular piece of furniture in that tabernacle is also a picture of Christ, the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, is, the, is the centerpiece, and, and what the Ark of the Covenant was to the Old Testament uh, is, is what the cross of Jesus Christ is in the New Testament. It's where, it's where the atonement uh, was taking place. It's where the blood was spilled on the mercy seat. It's where the law of God was, was, um, was placed. And um, it was the, the mercy seat is often... Uh, the propitiatory, it's where God's wrath against sin was absorbed, where the mercy seat is that took the hit, so to speak, when the glory of God rested there and the fire went up when the offering was received. Once a year, uh, the high priest was um, selected and went into that, that, uh, that holy place, that place of great trembling and great fear and great awe uh, to spill the blood on the mercy seat, and God's fire would consume the offering, and uh, acceptance would be given. And, uh, but in this particular context, sins would be reminded of. When Christ came and died on the cross, it was with the purpose that the wrath of God would be poured out upon him, that he would absorb the brunt of God's wrath and punishment against our sin, but the purpose was so that our sins would no longer be reminded. They would no longer come into God's mind. They would be completely covered and cleansed and forgotten from the record. And also you see the second piece of furniture listed there was the, the bread, the bread of the presence, as it is often uh, stated. It was a, a small table that had two stacks of six loaves of bread 
and it was to be eaten before the Lord by the priest. It was a way of God saying that not only is he present, but he's present to provide for his people. For each, for each tribe, 12 loaves were, were placed. One for each tribe was, was placed. And it demonstrated God's presence, his provision for his people. And of course, you see how this points ahead to Jesus. He's the bread of life. He's the one that, on whom we feed. And uh, when Jesus in John 6 called himself the bread of life, he highlighted that we must eat his flesh, we must drink his blood. And the Jews misunderstood what was going on. They didn't understand what he was talking about. Uh, it was against the Jewish law to, to eat blood. And Jesus said very clearly in that passage that the flesh counts for nothing. It, it is, it's, it's the spirit that gives life. These words I have spoken to you are spirit and life. And by targeting his flesh and his blood, he's targeting the gospel. And he's calling his people to eat the gospel, to feed on that gospel message of the cross of Jesus Christ and, and to abide in him and to abide in that message. And then you have the, the light, the lamp, um, the lampstand that was set up. And the lampstand was, was like a tree of life. It was, it was a uh, menorah, some people would call it, and it was, but it was set up with almonds that, um, and leaves, as, as it were. It looked like a tree, and it gave light. It shined light on the, on the table of bread. And it was to be lit in the morning and in the evening, twice a day. It was to be lit because it represented the light that God gives to his people, the light that's given in his word. Even the psalmist picked up on this imagery and said, blessed is the man who does not walk in the council but meditates both day and night on the word of God. That the light was there to, uh, to give them guidance and to give them um, God's direction. It also was there to light the tabernacle. It was the only light in the tabernacle and um, very practical purpose of being there is so that when the priest walked in, he actually knew where he was going. Um, he wouldn't trip over the bread of the presence and fall and bang his head on the altar of incense. Um, but the light certainly had a more theological representation as well as giving light to God's people. The altar of incense, as mentioned, was, was also a, a high and holy piece of furniture that pointed to um, the prayers offered up to God, the, the prayers of intercession for the people of God. That in, the incense was a smell, it was a fragrance that was pleasing to God. And in these, both of these, the lamp and in the incense, you see a portrait of Christ who is the light of the world. Uh, he who believes in me shall never walk in darkness, Jesus said, but will have the light of life. The light that gives life. Life is the knowledge of the Father. Jesus said, this is eternal life, that they might know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Jesus highlights knowing the true God. He highlights knowing God who sent Jesus. He highlights the gospel. That's what the scripture is given to us for. And the incense, Jesus' own sacrifice is an offering of incense to God. It's a sweet-smelling savior to God. When God smelled, as it were, the offering of Jesus Christ, offering himself, it was acceptable and pleasing to God. You remember how Noah offered up an offering upon the new creation of when he came out the ark and 
God smelled the offering and said, never again will I curse. And he put the rainbow there as a reminder to himself and to the world that God was going to bless and purpose to bless people through a nation. And you see that kind of Noahic um, remix, as it were, in this particular passage. In verses 17 to 33, seven times it says, as, as, as the Lord had commanded Moses, it keeps repeating this uh, phrase. And it, at the end, in verse 33, it says, and Moses finished the work, which should not only remind us of, of Noah, who repeatedly says in that passage in Genesis 7 that Moses did just what God commanded. He did everything according to God's command. It should remind us of creation, that God had uh, created out of his command. And in the book of Genesis chapter 1, you see this repeated phrase, and it was so, and it was so, and it was so, and then God finished his work, and it was good. And so God was building then the first sanctuary in, in this world as he created and then created the Garden of Eden as his particular uh, sanctuary where Adam and Eve dwelt. And you see here in chapter 40 that God is revisiting that and he's, he's, he's commanding Moses to build another tabernacle, another dwelling place because God wants to dwell with his people. It's all about Emmanuel, God with us, that God would be our God and we would be his people, that that's God's intent, his purpose in the gospel, is that we would live and dwell with him. And so you see, um, uh, as you move through these different pieces of furniture, um, the veils, the screen, there were many screens, seven times in this passage it talks about a screen that cut off a barrier, that made a barrier between different pieces of furniture. That there's something uh, complete in this work, but in light of the New Testament, something incomplete because there's all these barriers to getting to God. There's all this insulation, because God is holy, 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 and the people he dwells among are sinful, rebellious, and perverted. But God still wants to dwell there with them. And so you see not only this about the tabernacle and its courtyard outside of the tabernacle, you see the, the offering, uh, the, the altar, the, the burnt offering altar, and... Um, where people came and offered sacrifices, the priests offered sacrifices that uh, totally consecrated the worshiper to God. And you see the, the, the basin there where the priests washed, and it was important for them to wash. Twice it says earlier in Exodus that if they didn't wash, they would die. And so God uh, reminds us of the holiness he requires and the cleanliness he requires of the, those who minister and his people who are, are, uh, who dwell among him. And so you see all of this imagery here and, um, and you see how it points to Jesus Christ and how he fulfills it all. He is the sacrifice. Not only uh, is he the, the, the Lord of the ark who, who rules, who rules through his law, and not only is he the bread of life, the light of the world, um, the sweet incense that goes up to God, the intercessor, the advocate, the one who prays and intercedes for us. Uh, he is uh, not only the one who washes and cleanses us, the one who offers himself fully as a burnt offering on Calvary. He is also the priest. You see how the priests are also uh, portrayed here, how Aaron and his sons were to be washed 
and were to be robed in a certain way and were to be set apart as a priests for perpetual uh, generations. All of these things uh, point us to Jesus. And um, Jesus is the great high priest who offered himself and ever lives to perpetually intercede for us. And uh, Jesus is the one who's, who clothes us in robes of righteousness and is himself clothed in uh, the robes of royalty. In this, also in the tabernacle and the priests as well, everybody was anointed. Anointed, God anointed, told Moses to anoint the whole tabernacle, to anoint every piece of the tabernacle, to anoint Aaron, to anoint his sons, to anoint everything with a particular oil for anointing. And Moses did everything that God commanded him to do. But in Christ Jesus, you cannot read this passage in light of the New Testament and in light of what it teaches and not see yourself also pictured here. Uh, we, we read in the book of Hebrews, and we are this house. We are God's house. We are His temple. We are His tabernacle, as it were. God lives inside of us, and, and He wants to furnish our lives with, with things that we see even in this Old Testament passage. Uh, God wants to furnish us with with a life that is centered around uh, the cross of Jesus Christ. A life that's centered around uh, a life of covenant love, that table of testimony that was placed in the ark, that law of commandments. Uh, God wants us to be obedient. He wants us to be holy people. He wants us to be people who respond to His grace and obedience. Not to get saved or to win God's favor, but because we have God's favor, we have been saved. And it is truly a revolutionary way of thinking every morning to wake up and say, I'm God's house. I'm God's dwelling place. And one of the things God wants central in my life today is the gospel. And a gospel that I respond to in an obedient life, a holy life, a sanctified life, a sanctified service. That that's, that's what God wants us to remind ourselves of every morning, that we are, we are His dwelling place, and we are to be centered on His gospel and driven in, every part that we, in everything that we do by His gospel, by His love, by the cross of Jesus Christ. Not only that, but God wants us to feed on the bread of life. He wants us to feed on Jesus Christ, on His Word, and on, on, and on what is where it teaches us about himself. He wants us to daily feed. The priest in the Old Testament uh, only fed, ate the bread once a week. And we, we come on Sunday and, and we eat the bread, as it were, of the gospel once a week. But in the new covenant, uh, we need daily bread. Every single day we need bread to eat uh, the gospel, the word of God. How is your a life of devotion. How is your time with God? Your so-called quiet time or your devotion time? Uh, when is the last time you opened the Scripture and meditated and read and soaked in the Word of God like a sponge and, and uh, written verses on Scripture passages and written Scripture passages on three-by-five cards, as it were, and carried them with you? You don't need to do that now. You have a phone that has uh, the whole Bible written there. But, but meditating on God's Word, hiding it in your heart on a daily basis. 
so that, so, that, so that as a priest, because we are all are priests, it's the priesthood of all believers, it's not simply Aaron and his sons and the Levites, it's every single child of God as a priest within this particular house that God gives us. And Malachi uh, teaches us in, in uh, the second chapter of his prophecy uh, what priests in the Old Covenant did and uh, priests in the New Covenant uh, probably uh, are called to do more, but we don't do less than they did. We do things differently, of course, because of the New Covenant, but it says in Malachi 2, uh, verse 5, it says, um, my covenant with, with him, that's Levi, was one of a life and peace, and I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear, and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and no wrong was found in his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and people should seek instruction from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. And is that um, something that you resolve for in a revolutionary way this year, that, that you would be the priesthood of, of all believers people that can come to you and they seek instruction, true instruction from your lips, guarding knowledge and, 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 and exalting the name of the Lord and all that the name of the Lord stands for. God uh, calls us to uh, this type of anointed living in a consecrated way that, that Jesus said, you are the light of the world. Uh, it's not uh, simply Jesus. Jesus is preeminently the light of the world. But in Christ Jesus, he calls us the light of the world also. And he calls us that so that people would see our good deeds and bring glory to our Father who is in heaven. That we would let our light so shine in such a way that that would be the end result of our life, that people would just know by our actions, by our manner, that we must be followers of Jesus Christ. We must be belong to Him. Our lives should be that way. It's a revolutionary, again, resolution to get up and say, I'm the house of the Lord, and this house is supposed to shine. This house is supposed to instruct. This house is supposed to exalt the name. This house is a place where people who don't know can come and, and hear the word of the Lord, and even people who do know can come and receive exhortation, that there might be mutual encouragement uh, among us uh, with each other's faith. And, um, and the altar of incense points to a life of prayer, a life of intercession, a life of, of calling upon the name of the Lord. And uh, how, is, how is your prayer life uh, right now? And it is a revolutionary resolution to be able to get up and say this is the house of the Lord. It is a house of prayer. A house of prayer. It's a house where all of the nations in the Old Covenant, all of the nations could have come. The temple was a house of prayer. Jesus reprimanded the people in his day when he was on earth and, and, and reminded them that this house is to be a house of prayer for all nations. And when he removed the temple and made his people a temple, that particular function in the house was not uh, removed. 
that this house is to be a house of prayer for all nations. And um, my brother uh, reminded me in talking to him that um, he was in, my brother was in the military at one point and he's retired now, but uh, he went to jump school where he jumped out of airplanes in the middle of the night. Um, and, uh, and so, but, but when, before when they were going through their training, he would pray and uh, his uh, battalion would make fun of him and laugh at him uh, because he prayed all the time. And uh, then when they got up in a jet in the middle of the night and had to jump and the door opened, they all came running to him and said, Frankie, would you please pray for us? Uh, because it was dark and it was windy and it was loud and it was high in the air and they knew uh, that he was a prayer warrior. And uh, is that true of, of you and I this morning? Do people know you as a, a man, a woman of prayer? Uh, and, and are you known as, as a man and woman of prayer as well? That, uh, that we don't, you don't just run to someone and say, well, I know you can get a prayer through, but how about you? Uh, you can get a prayer through too, can't you? Uh, you come in the name of Jesus and you call upon the name of the Lord. And uh, God, the Bible says, will never forsake those who seek him. Um, that our, our house should be a house of prayer, uh, praying always for God's people and praying for the nations to come to know uh, the Savior. Jesus Christ is preeminently the great high priest, our advocate, our intercessor. He is the one who prays for us. He ever lives to intercede for us. And, and we, uh, the Bible says of us, that we don't know how to pray as we ought to pray. Uh, but the Spirit himself who lives inside of us, he intercedes for us with groans too deep for words according to the will of God. The Spirit of God is always at work in us, interceding for us. That's amazing to think that the Spirit of God who lives in you is always interceding for you, always praying for you, and his prayers are always according to the will of God, and they always get heard, and they always get answered, and they're always for our good. And uh, how does that instruct us? It instructs us because the Spirit of God gives us the Word of God. And when, when, when you have those moments in your life where you just don't know what to say to God, open up the Psalms, open up the Bible, open up the Bible wherever it might be, but, but you pray the Scripture back to the Lord. When, when David was, um, uh, wanted to build God a house, he wanted to build a temple, he wanted to do what Moses did, but in larger measure. And, and he, 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 he said that to Nathan the prophet, and Nathan said, do all that's in your heart. And, and as soon as Nathan went out, God said, tell him no, tell him it's his son who's going to build a house. And, and God sent Nathan back and told David, I'm going to build you a house. I'm going to build you a kingdom. I'm going to build, and he was talking not only about Solomon, but talking about Jesus. And when God got finished through Nathan explaining the promise of God in verse 24 and 25 uh, uh, of, of 2 Samuel 7, uh, David turned the promise right into prayer. He flipped the whole thing around. Everything that God just said to him he now prayed back to God. And uh, the one thing about praying the scripture is that you know it's the will of God. It's his word. You know it's in line and in sync with what he wants. The Bible says in 1 John 5 uh, that when we pray according to the will of God, we know that God hears our prayer and we have the request that we have asked of him. And um, Jesus obviously is our preeminent example in the Garden of Gethsemane his prayer in, the, in his hardest moment 
on earth uh, leading up to Calvary. He, he, he expressed his heart to God, if possible, let this cup pass, but nevertheless, not my will, but let thy will be done. Uh, that's a radical resolution uh, to make, and it's a very rational resolution to make if God is all-wise and all-knowing and always has your best interest in mind and always manipulates the cosmos for your good. Why wouldn't we want the will of God done in our life? And so we should be people who are constantly asking for the will of God to be done, constantly seeking that will in the Scripture and praying that Scripture back to God that it would take place in our life. We should be uh, people who are ready uh, to be uh, useful to God. Jesus said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Moses here is the one who built this tabernacle along with Israel, but Jesus, as the new Moses, as the, as, the, as the one greater than Moses, he builds his church, and he furnishes his church with certain aspects and characteristics that are to be uh, always uh, the traits of his people. We're to be a people centered on the gospel, a people feeding on the word, a people giving light, a people of prayer, a people who are washed and cleansed, a people who are completely consecrated. That's what the burnt offering teaches us and the grain offering teaches us is to be thankfully, fully consecrated to God. That's a radical resolution to have is to be grateful and to be fully consecrated to God. Um, and, and where do you get the motivation to do that? Well, Paul teaches us, doesn't he? This passage teaches us, I, believe, I beseech you, my dear brethren, in view of the mercies of God, in view of the mercies of God, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God as our reasonable act of worship. And don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our mind, by the Spirit working in and by the Scripture, so that we might prove what is God's good and acceptable and perfect will. That's what God calls us to. It's what God called Moses to. It's what God called the priesthood to. It's what Jesus demonstrated in his life, and it's what in him we are called to in like manner. We are that temple of God. The Bible says in the book of 2 Timothy, uh, you know the passage in chapter 2, um, it says in verse uh, 20, now in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honor, use, honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. And so the Bible, after that, it says, so flee youthful passions and and, and to be that, that house of God that's set apart, that vessel of God that's cleansed and set apart for his service, useful to him. Is your life useful to God right now? Um, have you done the work of confession of sin? That's one of the things that took place in the tabernacle on a daily basis was people came and confessed sin and uh, offerings were made, blood was spilled. Well, blood has already been spilled, the blood of Christ, so that we can enter into the presence of God, confess our sin, and be cleansed by him. The Bible says to us in 1 John, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all of our unrighteousness. That process of sanctification and purification takes place in the process of confession 
of our sin so that we might be vessels set apart for the master's use. That this year, radically and uh, rationally and uh, in a revolutionary way, and a resolution that we should make is that we would be vessels fit for the master's use wherever he might send us. Um, We realize this because, number two, God's design in Christ is to fill us, to fill our life with successful fellowship and a successful following. Moses finished the work as God had finished the work of creation. This is like a work of new creation. And you are God's work of new creation, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared in advance for you to do. Um, When this was completed, in verse 34, we see that the cloud of the cloud of the Shekinah cloud of God's glory covered the tent of meeting and the glory of God filled the tabernacle. Even Moses was not able to enter into the tabernacle of all people. And you see in this picture, the tabernacle is a portrait of Mount Sinai. Uh, It's Mount Sinai, as it were, laid down. At the very end of it was the Holy of Holies, and that was like the top of Mount Sinai, and halfway down was like the holy place where the priest could go, and the priest went up there uh, in chapter 24 and supped with God, and outside, the very bottom, was where the people were, and... um, But at this particular point, when the glory of the Lord filled, even Moses could not enter. And it's not because Moses was somehow he had sinned in some way, but but God is teaching by this action that this is his house. It's not not our house. Um, That your body is not your own, right? Uh, Paul teaches us in 1 Corinthians 6 that we've been bought with a price and um, we are not our own. We belong to Jesus. And so it matters what we do in our body because it's not ours to do with as we please. Our body is given to us as a trust. It's a vessel that God gave. He bought it with his blood and it belongs to Jesus. Every single part of you belongs to Jesus. And it's important to remind ourselves on a daily basis that's a radical way of thinking. It's a revolutionary way of thinking and resolving to live in this particular society and culture is that this is not my body. It belongs to Jesus. And every part of it belongs to Jesus and is supposed to be set up to give glory to God in Christ. Do you think of your body in that way? Do you think of the parts of your body in that way? Just think about a simple act of your tongue and how you use your tongue. It's not your tongue, it's Jesus' tongue. Um, about your eyes, where do you place them? They're not your eyes, they're Jesus' eyes. They belong to him and are all supposed to be set apart for his glory and for his, his majesty. And um, in order for our life to be filled with the Spirit of God, with the glory of God as intended, We need to have a a radical, revolutionary resolution to truly be set apart for him, to truly be set apart for him. You know, if you're a believer today, uh, Satan can't take you. You're not going to go to hell. You'll never be separated from God. But if you and I don't walk in a sanctified way, if we don't live in a holy way, uh, God can't nearly get as much of the work out of you that he intends to get out of you. 
uh, God can't work through you the way he intends or desires to if you're not walking with him in a revolutionary type of way. And if we're not radically seeking the face of God and radically seeking to be holy in, a, in, an, un, in, a, in an adulterated setting, to be light and to be salt, um, God can't get the usefulness out of us, the work out of us that he desires to gain out of us. You see that in the life of Saul, the king Saul, how God regretted in making him the king. And he didn't, it's not like God had made a mistake or something, but God is using anthropomorphic language to demonstrate that he, he would have desired to have gotten a lot more out of Saul than he got out of Saul, but Saul just wouldn't listen to God. That was his problem. It's not that listening to God at that particular point would have saved Saul, but it would have helped sanctify him and get him to be more useful. The same thing with us. Uh, when, when Israel came to the front door of the promised land, because of their despising God and not believing God and not trusting in God and not obeying Him, God couldn't work through them the way He intended to. So they had to die in the wilderness. Because God has a purpose, God has an objective, God has an aim that its earth would be filled with the knowledge of His glory just like the waters cover the sea, with or without us. And so the point is that God wants to use us. He wants to be with us. God demonstrates that, that his, his filling the tabernacle Moses can't enter. This is my house, God is saying. That's what Jesus demonstrated when he cleansed the temple. This is my Father's house. And things are supposed to happen in the house the way the Father wants them to happen in the house. And so uh, I commend to you this year as to wake up every morning reminding yourself this is my Father's house. And things are supposed to take place in this house a certain way for God to get the play he wants to out of us that this is a place where God gets his way. God's going to always get his way, but, but sometimes God gets his way and it's against the will of those to whom he got his way with. You know, God got his way with the, um, with the people in Jesus' day, but, but they didn't want God's way. But he's still overruled, he's sovereign, but, but God wants the people who willingly say, God, let your will be done. Uh, my, your wish is my command. Whatever you demand, that's where I will take my stand. Whatever you do, just get your way in my life. One of the things that we pray around the table at our house on a regular basis is that, Lord, you've given us a short period of time on this earth. Whatever happens, wherever we go, we pray that we would not leave this earth without you first having completed through us what you created us for that we would not leave here without doing the work you made for us to do. And I commend that sort of, sort, of, sort of attitude with respect to you. I'm sure that you have a similar prayer that you pray to God. But God wants to fill the house. He wants to so fill the house so that the house, as it says in, in Ephesians chapter 3, it says that God, God wants us to know uh, the, the breadth, the length, the height, the depth, to know the love of Christ so that it surpasses knowledge that we might be filled with the fullness of God, that, that, our, that we would not come into uh, the picture, but God would come into the picture. Not only does it point to that, but it points to the fact that we need someone greater than Moses to bring us into the most holy place of God, that Moses couldn't enter himself, but we need someone else who's going to bring us into the presence of God, and obviously that person is Jesus. Jesus above all, beyond Moses, way light years beyond him and light years beyond us. Jesus is the one whose sacrifice split 
the, the veil in the, tabern, in the temple from top to bottom as a way of God saying, the way is now open to any and everyone who comes trusting in my son. That there's now no barrier. The, the mediator has come and he takes us by the hand and walks us into the presence of the holy, holy, holy God. And, and God has, has, has befriended us and has uh, adopted us into his family, has brought us in as his very own, as his very own children. And not only uh, is that what's communicated here, it's also communicated that the holiness of God is communicated, that God is a holy God. Even for a holy and redeemed people, God is a holy God. God spoke to the, in, to the people of, of, in the book of Hebrews. Uh, the audience there was a Jewish audience. And, and God said to those people that, that our God is a consuming fire. Uh, spoken to believers, spoken to redeemed people. God is a holy God. Um, when Uzzah was walking with God's people and they were carrying the Ark of the Covenant and, 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 and the oxen slipped and the, and the Ark was, was about to fall and, and, you know, who wouldn't reach out and try to steady the Ark, try to steady the place where God set as His thrones, steady the most valuable and pri uh, priceless piece of furniture in, um, in the tabernacle and he touched it and God struck him dead and, uh, because, because God had given Uzzah a particular command and David was afraid. He didn't want the ark to come to his house but then it brought great blessing. God is not a God out to, uh, to zap you necessarily but a God is a God who wants to be taken seriously and to be revered. God is to be respected. He is a holy, holy, holy God and he is not to be toyed with. You know, sometimes a friend of mine, we, we talk a lot, he's a buddy of mine, um, um, and he, he jokes around with me a lot because um, he knows I'm an ultra-serious type of person. Um, and, uh, and he says to me, I'm, I'm, I'm just playing with you. And I say, well, don't, I'm not a toy. Don't play with me, you know. Um, and uh, so we, we, we have fun with that. But, but in all seriousness, God is not to be toyed with. He's not to be played around with. He's serious and he's holy. And, um, and he's set apart. Uh, and not only is that what's taught in this passage, but we see that the cloud, when the cloud came, the people didn't move until the cloud moved. And when the cloud moved, the people moved. When the cloud settled, the people settled. And, and they, they saw that cloud. And uh, they had cloud coverage way back then. Um, I don't know how much gigabytes you have in your cloud, but I bet you their cloud had more gigabytes than you did, yours does. And, uh, but, but you've got cloud coverage as well. You've got Jesus covering you. You have the Spirit of God dwelling inside of you. You've got the glory of God living in you. You've got the cloud of glory inside of you. And, and this passage teaches not only the lordship of God, that they didn't move until he told them to move, but it teaches the leadership of God. He always dwelled where they were dwelling. God was a, was a shepherd. He was always with them wherever they go. And perhaps that's a good message for you to go into the new year with as well, knowing that God is not only the Lord of your life, not only the God who is holy, but he is the God who loves you and who will lead you every step of the way. Uh, he will guide your step, and he will guide you. So stage your house, um, not to sell, but for God to dwell. God already dwells inside of you. But he has staged you, he's furnished you a certain way, and he teaches that in the Old Covenant. He teaches us as well uh, to live a certain way that will bring glory. 
God's design in Christ is to fill your life with successful fellowship with God and a successful following of God. Uh, let that be uh, what starts your day uh, if you're able to, to put your time with God in the beginning of the day or the middle of the day or the end of the day, whatever part that fits your schedule. The point is that you would have time daily with God, reminding yourself that you are his dwelling place. He lives inside of you. He's there to rule you, to guide you, and to bring you um, the beauty of his glory and majesty, and also to use you as a priest in this world, as a go-between God and his people, and his people in God, and with people who don't know the Lord, as we have opportunity to share with him, to feed on him, to be light, to be intercessors, to be centered on the gospel, because Christ has come and tabernacled inside of you. You are the temple of the Lord, staged for success that only comes through walking in holiness in response to God's grace as we live in life in light of Christ. Let's pray. Our Father, in Christ's name, we come and we give thanks to you. Um, Father, your power is perfected in our weakness, and, and you work through us, and you work through your word. We pray that you would be gracious to us and that you would stage our lives for success that, that means glorifying you. Father, we pray that every day we would be very resolved to be radical, to be revolutionary in the culture in which we live, in the society in which we live, but it's the most reasonable and rational way to live in light of what Christ has done and the fact that he's come and has laid his life down as a burnt offering, as it were. It's almost as if he went up in smoke but, Father, we know that he went up in glory, bodily, physically, having been raised from the dead. And now he comes and lives with us by his spirit. Father, fill our house, fill this temple with your glory, with your spirit, and use us to magnify you in this world. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.